This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is sponsored by BT, because BT means business. BT knows that businesses come in many shapes, sizes and guises, from the person just starting out at their kitchen table to the biggest employer, which is why no matter what line of work you're in, they've got your back to help you succeed and do what you do best. No doubt connectivity is a must in Westminster, and it certainly helped us to get this episode created and distributed to you listening right now. BT already connects more than 1 million businesses and public sector organisations, offering secure and reliable connectivity. Nearly three quarters of people running a business or side hustle feel they couldn't do so without reliable broadband and mobile connectivity. That's why having connectivity you can count on is a must for business, whether it be facilitating multiple devices being connected at once or making team calls or guest Wi-Fi access for customers. BT's connectivity helps keep you and your customers happy. Whatever your business, BT's got your back. Search BT's got your back. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. Hello and welcome to the Red Box Politics Podcast in the Times. I'm Matt Chorley. On this week's episode, Matt Moore, the Times media correspondent on The Trouble at Radio 2. Fiona Hamilton, the Times crime editor on crime figures and what Sajid Javid can do about them. But first, the Times chief political correspondent, Lucy Fisher, on Theresa May's trouble with Northern Ireland. The landslide vote in favour of amending abortion law in Ireland has prompted calls for change in Northern Ireland, with Tory ministers and backbenchers backing calls for Westminster to intervene in the province. Theresa May is on a collision course with the DUP, the party propping up her fragile government. So this is interesting. When, when Theresa May, I don't like to laugh, but when she lost a majority in June last year um, and then had to rely on the support of 10 DUP MPs, it was thought at the time that the sort of social reform flashpoint mm-hmm. would be on gay marriage and there was mm-hmm. a lot of reassurance to Ruth Davis and people like that uh, that there was going to be no backpedalling and actually was going to pursue that um, in Northern Ireland and actually because of what's happened in Ireland completely independently of what's been happening in the UK the referendum voted overwhelmingly for reform in Ireland it, this is suddenly <laughs> in Theresa May's already quite full intro created yeah. a huge nightmare Yes, a huge nightmare. Um, I think it's sort of it's clear from the blanket calls um, th- across uh, across the Commons from the front benches. And Milton, the Skills Minister, was on the airwaves at the weekend, um, saying that she believed that there was a significant majority in the Commons to change the law in Northern Ireland, uh, and pointing out that, of course, traditionally votes on abortion, like euthanasia and other matters of conscience, have traditionally been free votes, piling pressure on Theresa May. Of course, Labour's front bench position uh, is to back for women in Northern Ireland to have the same rights as everywhere else in the UK. And to my mind, I can't really see how the DUP have a leg to stand on. They're kind of arguing that this is a devolved matter of health care and that Westminster shouldn't intervene. But in actual fact, at the moment, you've got three women a day from Northern Ireland travelling to the mainland and procuring terminations uh, on the NHS in England, Wales and Scotland that are paid for by taxpayers in those countries. So I think that there is a grey area here uh, and something I feel really strongly about um, about changing and the interesting thing is the DUP's position is well it's devolved uh, which is it, healthcare is devolved but human rights aren't mm-hmm. and so it depends on whether you're treating as a health issue or human rights issue the other thing and, is and worth pointing out that the United Nations has said that the current law uh, is transgressing um, the human rights of women in Northern Ireland and the other problem is it basically nothing is devolved at the moment because the Stormont Assembly has been suspended for more than a year so there's nothing happening in Northern Ireland um and it all really just comes down to the politics. This is Theresa May having to shore up her political position in Westminster. She can't afford to upset the DUP. 
10 of them, or, yeah. you know, but the 10 most important people in the Commons in some sense. Yeah. Can she hold that position? It'll be interesting to see. I mean, it must be agonising for her. I feel that um, feminism sort of standing up for, for, for women's rights is a sort of core part of her legacy, which she'll be looking to ever more closely with talk of a kind of a leadership contest as soon as sort of we're out of the EU, possibly even before. It's difficult to see. I was struck by the fact that she waited until midday um, after the uh, results of the um, Irish referendum um, had been uh, announced to sort of congratulate and kind of comment on, on the results there. And, you know, she's sort of something that she wants her government, her administration to be known for. You know, she really backed Amber Rudd trying to kind of change the law on domestic violence. There's a consultation on that at the moment. Um, but equally, if the DUP go against her, that literally is the collapse of, of her government. And I thought it was, it was telling that the, the Labour attack line, the one that Shami Chakrabarti was using at the weekend, describing the Prime Minister as a self-identifying feminist, was pretty yes. devastating. <laughs> pretty devastating. And also a, a sort of a dig at... Um, the Tories' uh, ambivalence about self-ID when it comes to trans rights. Um, no, I, you know, I think Labour have really backed Theresa May into into a corner. What do you make of this, Fiona? Well, it's just a dreadful dilemma for Theresa May because I imagine, I mean, personally, a no-brainer on the on the on the law and how it should be changed. Um, that's personally for me, but I imagine, as Lucy says, that's um, something she probably feels quite strongly about. But to be backed into a corner like this where really the loss of DUP support a complete disaster. I can't really see how this one plays out. And it, I see it as an interesting, if you take a broader view, just of how this government is um, is sort of going on at the moment. Um, last, last week, she got rid of the Leveson 2 dilemma, which was a huge problem for her. And now another, even bigger, much more emotional problem crops up. It's going to be all over the papers, stories of dreadful stories of women who have had to travel or have perhaps died because they haven't been allowed those rights. And I'm not quite sure where where it ends for them. And, and the, the, the problem is, if you speak to the, any Tory whips, they spend... There's only so many times they can twist someone's arms and pull off their fingernails. If they've got no fingernails left, trying to persuade them to... You know, they haven't even got to Brexit, the EU withdrawal bill, to try and persuade... You know, they've got to try and get that through Parliament... Even having to deal with the political fallout of, a, of another vote on this is a, is a problem. What about you, Matt? What do you make of it? Well, what I'd be very interested in is, is, is there any polling around what people in Northern Ireland would, would vote for an abortion if there was a referendum? Because if, if for some reason, um, Theresa May imposed a referendum or DUP agreed to have one, they would presumably then campaign against any um, major change to the law. And Northern Ireland doesn't seem to have gone through the social liberalisation process that the, the South has done with, with gay marriage and, and gay rights of the last five, four or five years. Would would Northern Ireland be uh, buck the sort of liberal trend and vote to keep its own abortion laws? And what would that do? It's a really good question. There was um, a poll that Amnesty International carried out last year that showed, um, I think it was about three quarters um, in support um, for changing the law, okay. um, at least in the case of uh, incest and rape, okay. uh, I, I think. Um, I mean, obviously campaigners have sort of argued that that was um, about the sample size. I think it was about a thousand people. I think mm. they, they argue it wasn't the right kind of conditions for a for a kind of trustworthy poll. But it, it's a really good question whether it's kind of less liberal than it's sort of sister republic but. yeah and and it, well, maybe the process of going through a campaign because it seemed from the outside that um, southern ireland and particularly southern irish women it's it's been hugely energizing and mobilizing this issue around sort of 
broader liberal causes, whether we could see something beneficial for, for Belfast and Northern Ireland politics as well if there was this referendum and people were allowed to kind of speak out about these taboos and maybe shrink away from religious and sectarian politics. You're, you're a brave man coming into this studio and advocating another referendum. <laughs> <laughs> Generally, uh, we have a very strong line against any, any voting on anything in particular. But it, interestingly, Lucy, there's been a bit of a split, it seems, even amongst Labour. You've got some people calling for a referendum in Northern Ireland, other people saying that you don't need to have a referendum because... You could just change the law. You could just change the law. Yeah. And they, actually, there was one in Ireland because constitutionally they need to do with literally amending the constitution. Um, and they, actually, there are just the conditions that the, the Westminster Parliament, with its elected MPs, can just vote on this yes. as they do on other matters. Yes, you're absolutely right. So there's the, there, there is that split. Some people want want a referendum. They're only advisory in Northern Ireland, so they it wouldn't be binding if they did hold one. Um, and other people like uh, Stella Creasy, the Labour MP, who um, is planning to table an amendment to the Domestic Violence Bill when it comes before the Commons. As I say, there's a consultation at the moment that ends at the end of this month. So legislation could yet be some way off and thrown into the long grass if this you know, if this is going to be, continue to be a problem for Theresa May. But the likes of Stella Creasy and sort of women's rights campaigners think that this is too urgent um, an issue and that Westminster should kind of go ahead and, and change the law without a referendum. While I feel really strongly about it, I, I'm slightly ambivalent myself because I think what would be the unintended consequences to the constitutional arrangement and the, and the Sewell principle of, of, of not intervening with major kind of constitu- constitutional and ethical changes in, in the province. But it, it is an urgent issue and, um, and perhaps that should be the way they go forward. It does put the spotlight back on what's going on in Northern Ireland with the power sharing and the collapse of government and, and, and how, how long that is going to take to get things back there. I was there a couple of weeks ago and people were complaining, nothing's happening there, nothing's moving. They're in a massive limbo at the most important time in recent history with Brexit negotiations. And just before we move on, I just want to ask you, Philip, about... Because this is what this again highlights, is that although we are part of the United Kingdom, there are different laws in all bits of it. When you're doing your job, how much of it do you have to spend trying to work out the different legal system in Scotland and England and Wales and Northern Ireland? Uh, well, the Scottish legal system is utterly confounding. <laughs> <laughs> I hope they don't... I think a lot Carefully of Scots agree. <laughs> Uh, although they may say the same about the system down here, so it's very different. And actually, in terms of doing my job, whilst um, the security aspect of my job, uh, occasionally uh, I delve into Northern Ireland, actually it's it's very separate. And um, until recently, I don't think we have that great interest in what's going on in Northern Ireland. The, the, I'm not talking about newspapers necessarily, but the population as a whole here. Uh, the last time I went to Northern Ireland for work was seven years ago when there was a police officer very terribly um, attacked uh, in a car bomb and killed and that was in Omar so that was obviously resonated very very strongly Uh, and it was interesting being over there because there were all sorts of security alerts Uh, in the week that I was there there were about seven I think Uh, and they would never ordinarily make the news here so uh, I would have to plead a little bit of ignorance on that. Well, no, on I think, how to cover I think court all, there. all journalists have suddenly, particularly political journalists, have suddenly yes. become very detailed experts in the <laughs> board of arrangements <laughs> and uh, constitutional niceties of Stormont, uh, which doesn't exist. Um, but it will be interesting to see how uh, this plans out. But let's move on uh, for now. And this is Fiona Hamilton. After years of hostilities following plebgate, swinging cuts, and unpopular reform, are the Tory police relationships? beginning to thaw and what was behind new home secretary Sajid Javid's charm offensive at the police federation conference last week 
Now, this was fascinating. There was a good game of uh, spot the difference to be had between the speech that Theresa May used to give to the Police Federation, telling him stop crying wolf and just get on with it, stop moaning. And and he really ladled it on, Sajid Javid, in his, his debut outing. He really did. I mean, I've had the enormous pleasure of attending the Police Federation Conference for <laughs> several years. It's always by the sea, isn't it? That's, that's it's something. not anymore. It used to be in Bournemouth. Was it not was, in Bournemouth um, anymore? It, very pleasant. It's now in Birmingham, which I have to say is a great city. Lots of um, <laughs> lovely places to go and eat. And uh, we all had a very good time. But... Um, a really, really big difference. It's been very frosty over the last few years. Of course, Theresa May famously gave her speech to them where she said, um, you're crying wolf, uh, you're crying wolf over police cuts. And uh, that did not go down very well at all. And in subsequent years, it perhaps got a little bit better towards the end of her time as Home Secretary, but there hasn't been warm support for the Tories, quite the opposite. Uh, Amber Rudd, uh, it was interesting, even as recently in November, I mean, we've all been talking about violent crime increasing <clears throat> for the past, since New Year's Eve really, um, has been a major issue for the papers, but actually it's been increasing for well over a year. Uh, and she went to a conference of police chiefs in November and told them, first of all, that crime was not increasing, which raised some eyebrows because it was an interesting <laughs> um, interpretation of the statistics. <laughs> um, I think it was a, but, very much a Ruddian interpretation yes. of the facts, which we, we came to see later on and led to a doubtful. Quite. <laughs> um, but also told them to stop complaining. Um, the public didn't want to hear their complaining uh, and the public just wanted to see them cut crime and fight crime. Now, I think uh, Sajid maybe has, has seen that actually the public are listening to the police complaining uh, and that the public are not happy. And I think the Tories are very concerned about the rise, particularly in violent crime, but crime overall in certain areas. And, uh, and they're meant to be the party that is strong on law and order and it's not really looking like that. And they need the support of the police back and they've really lost it at, at you know, the rank and file particularly. But all the way through. Is there ever a time when the police federation liked the government of the day? Because I mean, <coughs> they're essentially like a trade union, and they all trade unions always want more money and of better, you know, more staff and all of that. Of course, and I think they started to talk about um, cuts about six or seven years ago, and um, and there was probably not the case that there is today, but they they do have that case now. I mean, at the conference, I heard. Uh, leaders talking about a deficit of 5,000 detectives, um, the cr soaring crime rates in certain areas, and a, a really real difficult way, uh, very difficult for them to work out how to tackle that because they've lost uh, more than 20,000 police officers. So those cuts really, the cuts have consequ consequences, has been the Fed's slogan for many years now, and, and they are making that point now, quite strongly. Lucy, I was struck in uh, Red Box this week. We had a piece actually about uh, anything, basically anything to do with Brexit. Mm. Imagine there was no there was no Brexit. And interestingly, looking at the polling from public attitudes about challenges the country faced immediately before the referendum and now, crime is one of the ones that's gone up a lot. Yeah, it's just it was only crime and crime, health. Crime and it? health had really yeah. gone up. Uh, obviously, Brexit has appeared as a sort of massive uh, issue above that. But this is a problem for the Tories, isn't it? If they're even losing ground on the the thing that they're the you know, the party of law and order. Yeah, it, it struck me actually. It's one of those things I've heard about from a lot of MPs. They talk, you know, when you sort of chat to them in the corridors of Westminster. You know, what are you, you know, what are you hearing in your surgeries? What, what's kind of what's troubling you casework wise? 
there's been a real lag with the sort of the national conversation catching up with what lots of MPs have been aware of locally, both and, and, and you know, both in in the shires or kind of rural areas. I think we tend to think of crime only as sort of an urban problem, um, but it seems really ac- across the board people have been concerned about this for a couple of years. And of course, it you know it really came to hurt Theresa May in the snap election last year, where um, with the kind of the terror attacks that happened, you know, the, the, the spate of terrible attacks we had um, before the poll, you know, questions started to be asked about, you know, police cuts, both in relation to kind of national security, but I think also increasingly crime. I just wonder, um, Fiona, what what you think, it's sort of, you know, Matt and I constantly listening to Police Minister Nick Hurd on the airwaves and and, and his colleagues trying to argue that 20,000, a fall of 20,000 police officers since 2010 hasn't doesn't have an effect and actually Mm. all the studies show that that doesn't that doesn't matter or doesn't affect kind of crime rates surely that's nonsense i think also the the, one of the issues is that crime is increasingly complex for a variety of different issues and you need you need um uh it's not just about numbers you need people who actually know what they're doing they're well trained (laughs) 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 but you know you just just add another twenty thousand. that won't necessarily solve the problems that we're facing here you you have to take a quite sophisticated view if you're a senior police leader these days because you're you're coming up against for example the terrorists who are um are much harder to detect these days because of technology and encrypted applications and all those sorts of issues and the globalization of terrorism you're dealing with much much more vulnerable people child sex grooming all those sorts of issues infinitely more complicated to tackle than uh traditional crime which has been falling of um although it's starting to increase again but your traditional uh car break and break and enters all that sort of stuff so i think that you know, there there are really fundamental problems. The other thing I think that's quite interesting in terms of the impact it will have on, on the Tories and their voter base is that the police are having to make very difficult decisions about what they tackle. And quite naturally, they have to focus on online sex abuse, grooming scandals, those really complex crimes. But those only affect a relatively small proportion of the population. Most people, most of us who are affected by crime, will be affected by a burglary or somebody breaking into a shed or vandalism. And if those people start to feel that they don't get any impact or any, uh, because the police can't turn up to some of those crimes, I think that is going to pose a really difficult political problem. Matt, one of the things that really shocked me, both during the election campaign last year and again this year when there was the spike in violent crime in London, is it Labour Party, not always the most politically adept operators, mm. actually managed to wrong foot the Tories on law and order. And, and you know, if, if, if you're being outfoxed on law and order by Jeremy Corbyn <laughs> and Diane Abbott, well, something's I, gone wrong. I wonder whether that's partly a reflection of the, the very decent PR job um, the elements of the police have done in recent years. And Fiona will know more about this than me, but I remember watching... Uh, police-fed um, conferences many years ago, the Theresa May one you mentioned, and they were male, pale and stale. They seemed like a kind of a very much an interest group that needed reform and, and their, their opinions could be dismissed. And I think sections of the police have done quite well recently in opening themselves up to the challenges they face. Um, sorry to put a media spin on it, but last night I watched a Channel 4 documentary, 24 Hours in, in Police Custody, um, where the head of Bedfordshire Police had given great access to um, to a Channel 4 crew to film a very complex drugs investigation. Um, extraordinary footage, and it really put into um, kind of very public terms the challenges the police face, how good they can be at getting to grips with them, um, but the fact that they do need more resources and, and, and crime is, is getting more complex. And I think that's that 
uh, sort of openness and candor like that that some forces have shown have helped change the conversation and made people, um, the average member of the public, a bit more sympathetic to police claims than they were five yeah, years ago. Yeah, I, I don't think there's many forces who haven't done uh, an enforced <laughs> <true>. documentary. <laughs> Although I, I wish, they'd, good, I wish they would allow yeah. us such um, amazing access to what people are doing, but <laughs> perhaps I'm a little bit bitter. But we've seen a similar <laughs> thing in the NHS, the, the, the BBC's fly-on-the-wall documentary. Yeah, the, uh, the Doctor series there. The Doctor series and the Ambulance yeah. and yeah. Uh, all of those give those sort of... And they're obviously going to be more dramatic because they're the things that end up on TV, mm. but that people feel like they're getting the true story mm-hmm. versus whatever spin it is that politicians are giving them. Yeah, absolutely. And I, th- I think broadcast media has done, because they get better access than, than um, our, myself and other, other print colleagues, um, they're, they're, it's possibly been broadcast media documentaries that have captured the extent to which austerity is, is, is having a, a sort of real world effect yeah. and mobilised this movement we are seeing where people are saying enough is enough and we, do, we actually need to fund off our public services better. It's a sort of a testament to the power of television. And just very quickly, Finney, do you, what impact do you think Sadie Javi will have at the Home Office, given, I mean, Amber Rudd seemed constrained from day one by the fact that she was doing the boss's old job and never really got out from underneath the, the weight of that. He's clearly trying to say from the get-go that he is different. Do you think that's real? Yeah, yeah, I mean, he's clearly sort of set down his stall in that regard. And, uh, I mean, somebody at the Fed conference said to me, well, it can only get worse from here. Um, and that, and really what he's got to do, if he wants to continue in the same way, is um, come up with the money, and that might be quite difficult. I mean, to re- uh, Cressida Dick asked for a couple of hundred million pounds um, for terrorism and was rejected. Uh, if they're saying no to extra funding, well, counter-terrorism budget is actually, it's ring-fenced and they do quite well. But if they're saying no to something that really does resonate um, at the highest level of, levels of government, I think he will have an uphill, uphill task. The, the one good thing from the Police Federation speech, we've now got a new relative, because previously he was always the son of a bus driver. Yes. And now he's the brother the of brother a police, of police officer. <laughs> which he re- Half the speech was about Who's his just been um, who's just passed the strategic command course and is going up the ranks so I bet congratulations he is. to him <laughs> <laughs> uh, very good in a sec we'll be talking about uh, trouble at radio 2 we'll be back <clears throat> after this short break when you're ready to pop the question the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring at bluenile.com you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. Welcome back. You're listening to The Times Red Box podcast with me, Matt Jolly. Joining the studio by Lucy Fisher, Fiona Hamilton, and this is Matthew Moore. Radio 2 listeners are up in arms about changes to the station's drive time show, which have seen Joe Wiley paired with the slot's long-standing host, Simon Mayo. Are they just griping about change, or is this a BBC blunder? Now, I, this, this, this change slightly annoyed me, because I, I, when I wrote a column about the House of Lords, I described it as being as white, pale and middle-aged as the Radio 2 schedule. They've stolen your metaphor. They, yeah, and now they've, they've gone, right, get Joe, get Joe Riley in there. So this is the BBC trying to show that it's... 
Yeah, the context for all this, it was announced, the change was announced in January, shortly after weeks and weeks of headlines about BBC Equality sparked by the Carrie Gracie resignation. So it was part of the corporation trying to get on the front foot and saying we are addressing a long-standing issue, which is just how male the weekday daytime schedule is on Radio 2 and has been for 25 years. Um, the From breakfast to, to drive time, it's all been it's all been men. So um, it was... It was this, a change along these lines was long overdue. They needed to try and diversify the the daytime lineup. It's Britain's most listened to radio station, um, so they decided to take the very popular drive time show presented by Simon May, which had six million listeners, and did the same sort of features day after day that people were very familiar with and enjoyed on their commute home. And they took another very popular presenter, Joe Wiley, who did the evening show, and and moved her onto into into the drive time show, which they which they now share. It's been two weeks since that change came into force, and the certainly the the listener reaction has been overwhelmingly negative there is a sense that um the there is no dynamic between them the chemistry is very poor they seem to be completing each other's sentences and it's these are small gripes but they're things that are very um noticeable to listeners who've been with the show for years and, and see the presenter and his and his team of co-presenters as, as part of their friendship group essentially you spend two hours a day with listening to this show more than you spend with with your friends or or your family. So there has been a major backlash. There's been two petitions set up on, on websites. <laughs> I, I appreciate who petitions has, mean little these days. Who has time to go around setting up petitions <laughs> about what's on <laughs> Change the channel. Uh, I, th- I think people have, people, people have a sense of ownership yeah. over their radio station they in the way they don't over over their TV station. Mm. I think if they changed BBC Breakfast lineup, it wouldn't have got this this backlash. Um, so um, there've been two petitions. There've been sort of got, um, the controller of. Um, BBC Radio has sort of done uh, interviews where he's referred to how he acknowledges the, the sort of unhappiness um, but asked people to uh, give the chance to uh, to bed the show down. Uh, there, some people have said that the last week the show got a bit better, the dynamic seems to be improving, um, but I think it's just a reflection of how difficult it is for the BBC to address these legacy equality issues without alienating a, a listenership that is that, that doesn't like change, that wants consistency. Um, that wants familiarity, and um, it's um, they may not have handled it in the best way, but it's a reflection of them trying to update their schedules in a way um, to appeal to a broader range of listeners. Is the risk that having done it ham-fistedly, they don't attempt to address it across the board in other parts of the BBC? Uh, I guess you could say that if they if they just crowbar a woman onto a previously a man show, that's a way of ticking that box. There, other changes have been made at the station that have been promoting other other female DJs. It's part of a part of a process, and and the context to it is almost age rather than gender, because the um, BBC um, the controller of, of BBC Music has said that. Um, the Radio 2 is, is doing hugely well with 55 pluses, but sort of 35 to 55, it's been flatlining and they need to get people who are who are in that age bracket. And Joe Riley appeals more to them as a former Radio 1, recent former Radio 1 DJ, than Simon Mayer, who is who is slightly older and has a slightly older demographic. And the main way they seem to be doing it is by playing unlistenable noise on Radio 1. <laughs> I often discover. <laughs> um, Lucy, what do you make of this? Do you, are you a Radio 2 listener? Um, I, I like a bit of Radio 2. Um... If it makes me laugh, actually, my father bought uh, for me uh, Jeremy Vine's autobiography uh, as a Christmas gift um, a while ago. And um, I was laughing about listening to what you were saying because he was talking about when he first arrived with his show, how the sort of the great conservatism, sporty conservatism of the British public kind of completely rejected him to begin with. And he needed a lot of time to, to kind of bed in. And now, to my mind, he is the sort of he is the sort of the voice of, mm. of, of the station. So maybe it's just sort of people, I don't know, don't like change generally. But but I, I guess I don't know. I do think that there is a problem with the age thing, and I, 
now that radio has become democratized with you know podcasts uh and i would imagine that most people my age in their 20s or or 30s are more likely to kind of get a podcast on their on their sort of smartphone rather than turn on a digital or analog radio it it is a problem for the bbc yeah and i think there's an argument they could be a little bit relaxed about that they've got huge audiences of young people for their podcast do they need the 5 p.m radio 2 slot to have a bunch of 30 year olds listening Why, why not if if fifty year olds, sixty year olds enjoy it, why not why not go after them? Um, so yeah, I think there are there's certainly a group of old Radio Two listeners um, who who feel like they're almost their ears aren't wanted um, and younger ears are, are required. Presumably, they're panicking a little bit in in a way because they're seeing lots of an exodus of people to Spotify as well as podcasts. Mm-hmm. But of course, I don't really I listen to Radio Four, but I didn't you know if I want. Um, easy listening and what I enjoy I always turn to, to Spotify and they've got the same problem on the telly haven't they with Netflix so yeah absolutely this is, this is the sort of the broader uh, epochal challenge facing the BBC is how do you make yourself relevant when subscription services are, are stealing your audiences and there doesn't seem to be anything that those services can't do that, that, you, that you can do solely so perhaps local news and things like that Netflix isn't offering but um, there is oh it would be good though if they did soon, yeah. <laughs> watch that Netflix, uh, Netflix does local news it would be really dramatic well they'd have the resources to do it if they wish to but yeah um, the BBC needs to create a USP for itself in eight years time what are they doing that none of these global international subscription services uh, are currently doing uh, and that's the headache for Tony Hall at the moment can, can I ask you about um, this? Is not not so much radio, but as you've kind of mentioned, the subscription services. What this strikes me is the, the BBC does have a USP in in creating um, both kind of format shows like Strictly Come Dancing mm-hmm. and some brilliant kind of dramas, sort of especially the period dramas and the Dickens um, style, you know, three, five, ten parters. Mm-hmm. Um, and there was a there was a great um, article by Jeremy Paxman in the FT the other weekend about why why the BBC is so sort of passive in its negotiations with it, it kind of pays studios to kind of develop these fantastic shows or or dramas mm-hmm. and then you know after you know 28 days of elapsed on your iPlayer it's then sold off to Netflix and you have to you know you're a taxpayer you've paid for your license fee then you have to pay again to, to watch it. Yeah and that is something that the BBC is addressing there now they own a significant studio arms now and they are certainly conversations are ongoing between BBC, ITV, Channel Four about how they can maybe pull resources or, or come together to 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 combat um, Netflix and Amazon. Maybe a, a single service that offered some subscription content uh, and focused on on British-made shows, dramas, and and sort of shiny floor shows. And th- that is it's a, it's definitely something they're they're looking at. But then that's brings complexities to itself because obviously the BBC has its own charter, ITV mm. and Channel 4 are funded in very different ways. How do you how do you allow these services to, to come together and try and take on the might of Netflix? It's 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 not easily fixable. And the speed of these things move, we've gone from oh the BBC's the dominant, you know, player in all of this and now they're playing the oh we're the underdog, we don't really know what to do. You know, there's still BBC's still massive. Yeah, it, well, it's it's extraordinary how quickly the likes of Netflix have risen. There was a story about a year ago that Disney was thinking of buying them and last weekend Netflix outgrew Disney for the first time wow. uh, in terms of market capitalization. Uh so yeah, these things change very quickly. And just going back to our original point and, and Joe Wiley's plights on a fortnight on uh, <laughs> on Radio Two. Um, Fiona and Lucy, as as women in the room, um, is it just sort of patronising? Would you be any more inclined to listen to Simon Mayo because there was now a woman, you know, 
introducing 50% of the records. I think anything that has that veneer of tokenism, if there is, um, and this is, I don't mean this against Joe Wiley yeah. at all, um, but it, it, I think that that would probably turn me off. I wouldn't listen to something just because it now had a woman. Um, but of course, the, the the gender pay gap is um, absolutely disgraceful, and uh, and they do need to do things to sort it out. So it's a difficult one. I d- I agree with you. I wouldn't mm. listen to something spe- a specific show because specifically they had introduced a woman. But on the other hand, without quotas, without binding targets, things don't seem to change. You know, mm. it's two thousand and eighteen, and why is there uh, a major radio national radio station? taxpayer funded that has entirely a male you know schedule you know for most of the day so i don't i don't know what the alternative is to to solve the problem well, i know what they should have done they should have got rid of ken boos that's what they should have done they should have got rid of ken boos and just given joe wiley or somebody their own show uh, but i fear that's probably straying into the most dangerous territory we have in the last half an hour uh, that's all we've got time for this week as ever subscribe to my email uh, the Redbox Morning email, go to thetimes.co.uk forward slash Redbox. And don't forget you can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes on your Android device. But for now, from Lucy Fisher, Fiona Hamilton, Matt Moore and me, Matt Jolly, it's goodbye. Thank you for downloading. To discover more, head to thetimes.co.uk. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk.